0: Today is March 19th, 2019, and my guest is law professor and author Robin Feldman. She is the Arthur J. Goldberg Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the Institute for Innovation Law at UC Hastings College of the Law. She first appeared on EconTalk in June of 2017, talking about her book, Drug Wars. Her latest book is Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes, The Unstoppable Growth of Prescription Drug Prices. Robin, welcome back to EconTalk.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Uh, you call the rise in drug prices unstoppable, and it's, I know that's to get my attention, which, which uh, it does. Uh, let's start, though, with the question of how much they've been growing recently. You know, we see some headline, some story, some, some appalling multiple increase of X-100% in some crucial drug, and that gets people's attention. But what's going on overall
1: So we look overall, even from that perspective, the price of medicine has skyrocketed. Medicare spending for brand name drugs, even after accounting for rebates, still rose 62% between 2011 and 2015. I don't know about you, but I'm not bringing home 62% more salary than I did four years ago. Yeah. No. Now, the the prices for, for new drugs and, and rare conditions, some of the ones you were referencing, are, are causing their fair share of pain. But drug companies have raised prices most sharply for commonly used medications to treat things like diabetes, high cholesterol, asthma. Those price rises are causing real pain for people.
0: And talk about, you mentioned in passing, rebates. Um Most of the things that we often hear are list prices, but there are rebates. And uh, how are those working? How do they literally work? And and how does that market deal with how does the market, all the different players, how do the rebates work?
1: Ah, the, the, the rebate system is is marvelously complex and difficult. But if you step back, it's one very simple thing. The drug companies are able to pay the middle players who are known as PBMs as well as some hospitals and some doctors to make sure cheaper drugs are left out. That's all it is. Drug companies pay everyone along the way so that lower-priced drugs lose. They're simply sharing their monopoly rents to keep competitors out. What's, What's interesting and makes it complex is it's all wrapped up in secret deals that even the government and health plan auditors are not allowed to see. So I, I mentioned for you these PBM brokers. If, you, if, you're, if you're looking for an easy scorecard to, to tell you who's on first, the, the pharma industry will always disappoint you because it's got all these <laughs> funny acronyms. But at the center of this system lies these PBM brokers. Which stands for? Uh, pharmacy benefit managers. Not any better in full than no. it is in short. No. So PBMs negotiate discounts from drug companies And then they help the plan decide what it should charge patients. So the PBM works for the health plans. They're supposed to be getting a good deal for for you, for the patient. However, the drug companies have very cleverly turned that system on its head. Before they give a discount to the PBM brokers, they raise the price each year. And then the PBM can claim to have negotiated a great deal and, and everyone's happy. It's a little like a department store raising prices right before a sale, so that the sale price looks appealing. So you lift it up, and then you give a rebate, and um, everybody looks like feels like they got a good deal. Now, that might not be quite as bad if nobody paid those high list prices, but people do. So for those of us who have health insurance through our employers, thirty percent have the type of plan where you have to pay 100% out-of-pocket until you reach a deductible. And that out-of-pocket cost is based on the high list price. Many people have plans that have what's called co-insurance. You pay part when you pick up your drug. If it's co-insurance rather than copay, pay which is done a little differently, that's based on the list price. Many people don't have drug coverage or they have no coverage at all.
0: What about, what about Medicare?
1: Well, Medicare is a federal program that is administered by the states through individual private plans. Even though it is a federal program, the federal government is restricted by law from negotiating directly with the drug companies. Now, those um, negotiations happen at a different level. they They are distributed and each individual plan through its PBM negotiates the drug prices. And again, within that system, so you may have plans that have coinsurance. You may have plans uh, people opt for where they don't have much drug coverage. And even within those who are eligible for Medicare, there are many people who uh, haven't got a Medicare plan.
0: The strange thing about this market and this PBM uh, pharmacy benefit manager component is that uh, there are only th- there are three very large firms in that market. Uh, I know one of them is Express Scripts because it used to be, if probably still is in headquarters in St. Louis. I used to know them when I was teaching at WashU. Uh, they came into the market to try to make life easier for drug comp- for healthcare health insurance to manage this very complicated, increasingly complex world of, of benefit structure and, and list different kinds of drugs. And they seem to be the kind of, of middleman that, that would normally make things better. So why, first of all, am I right that there are three? How, how important are those three in the landscape? How much do they dominate it? And how did it get started?
1: You're absolutely right. Uh, 85% of the PBM market is dominated by the big three players, and they tend to move in lockstep. I have talked to large um, employer plans who've tried to negotiate for transparency or other types of um, different terms from the PBMs, and they are completely shut out. Uh, It's a very, it's a very small and very tight and powerful market. They started out um, historically just processing claims, massive number of claims and paperwork uh, to, you know, try to connect all of the pieces for a health plan. Very complicated. When we began to shift to digitization in this country, then the um, service that PBMs were offering became pretty commoditized. And so they had to try to figure out how to offer a service of value. They switched to, in addition to processing all your claims, we'll negotiate with the drug companies. And, and that's where we came to um, where we are today. Now, in theory, if you have somebody like a broker negotiating a deal for you, um, that should be pretty good, especially if their pay is based on how good a deal they might get. But that's not how things have played out in practice the incentives within the system uh, push in the wrong direction so first of all the the pbms um get get their payments from the drug companies in two form one is in the form of a rebate so the rebate will come later in the year long after uh John Smith has bought his heart medication and it will come to the PBM who could pocket it or could pass it on to the insurance company. Now, all of the agreements about how much should get passed on and in what circumstances, those are all held deeply secret. Um, The health plan who's a client is not allowed to see it um neither are the government uh, auditors um all of the the details of these plans are complete com- kept completely secret in my view i like to say markets like gardens grow best in the sun this type of hidden backroom dealing is not good for competition
0: but normally that just wouldn't happen uh in certain markets in most mar- in real markets i would say i was the way i would describe it usually if You wouldn't go to a middleman to shave off some portion of the profit unless they provided something of real value. And I think part of what this illustrates, and we're going to get into it in a little more depth, is how uh, abnormal, um, psychotic, uh, toxic, uh, non-normal the healthcare market is. And I I just say this because it has to be said – Uh, People all the time tell me, well, we know free markets aren't good in healthcare because look how bad, say, pharmaceutical market is. Well, it's not a free market. Uh, It's distorted in all kinds of ways and some of the ways we're going to be talking about today. But the other point I want to make and get on the table is that having read your book, Robin, you're not demonizing any of the players in any direct way because you're explaining, which is why it's a great bit of economics – how all the players are just responding to the incentives, but the incentives are not particularly uh, well-designed, and they didn't emerge from market forces. They come from often con- attempts to control, control the market by legislation. These incentives are in place, and that's the biggest part of the problem, not some evil conspiracy on the part of drug companies or PBMs. They're just trying to do what they're made to do, which is make money.
1: These are you, – you have to remember, these are profit-making entities. They are going to respond to the incentives that we put in place in their own interests. Now, imagine if a CEO went to a board of directors and said, I'm going to lower prices and reduce our profits. It's the right thing to do. That CEO would be fired. That's not what a company does. Um, You don't have... uh, perfect market in healthcare because you have third-party payers, you have a variety of other forces happening, but you can have a functioning market within that system. You just have to allow the right incentives to flow. Then we can get the kind of
0: competition
1: that gets the innovation we need. It's not where we are right now, but it is certainly possible. We are pretty good at markets in this country.
0: Yeah, I just want to say that, of course, many CEOs announced to their board, we're going to lower our prices. and, and we're going to make higher profits because if we don't lower our prices, our competitors have, and we're going to go out of business. So this is a market where, uh, because of a lack of competition, some of it due to the nature of the product, some of it due to government uh, protection, uh, the competitive forces are just not not in place. Uh, I want to talk about uh, a little bit more about the um, pharmacy benefit managers, the PBMs, for one more uh, bit, and then sure. get more into the incentives, but. Tell us what the formulary is because it's a rather striking thing that, again, most of us are simply not aware of. We go into the – pre- we go into the doctor. The doctor writes us a prescription. We n- almost never say – I do because I'm an economist and I read your books. But we almost never say, is there an alternative? Uh, we just say, oh, well, that's what I need. That's what I'll send to the pharmacy. I go to the pharmacy. I say, could you fill this, please? They do. That's the end of the story uh, usually, and the, there's a thing working in the background – part of which we've talked about is the pricing, but there's also this thing called the formulary. So describe that.
1: The formulary is specific to a particular health plan. And the formulary will decide whether um, you, the patient, who's the, the customer of that health plan, can get reimbursed for that drug and at what level you'll get reimbursed. In other words, does your plan cover it? And there are often um, up to five tiers in health plans, sometimes even even seven. And those tiers will determine um, what you can whether you can access and how much it costs. But those tiers have become a way that the players in the market, specifically the PBMs and the, the drug companies, um, have figured out how to drive people into the more expensive drugs um, in a way, of course that that um, benefits the the various players along the way the The name of the game in this is volume. So a drug company that has a lot of volume with a particular PBM or a hospital, same kind of deal happens with hospitals. So a drug company with a lot of volume can offer a better deal in exchange for excluding rival drugs from the formula or just making sure that the rival drug has a disadvantaged position. So let let me give you an example with some simple numbers. Imagine a large company saying to the PBM, I'll give you a dollar back from each of these millions of bottles of mine that you sell if you agree not to put my competitor on the menu. So that's worth, if you're a, a PBM, that's worth millions of dollars to you. Now, if the competitor particularly as a new entrant or a new generic, starts out selling only 1,000 bottles, how could it ever compete? That new entrant could never offer enough off its $1,000 of bottles or 1,000 bottles to compensate for the millions of dollars that the PBM would have to forgo. And it gets a little, it gets a little worse here. Some patients will always need their prescription filled with a brand-name drug. So maybe they have a reaction or a special condition, or maybe they're just wooed by advertising and they get their doctor to write no generic, no substitutions. So whatever the reason, the health plan will have to fill some prescriptions with that high price. So if I'm a PBM or health plan and I spurn the attractive deal offered by the drunk company, I'm going to have to pay that ridiculously high list price. And all of us know that could break the bank. So when the brand drug calls company comes calling, the big company, um, and offers to deal with a PBM, that's a deal that even the PBMs and the health plans can't afford to turn down. That's kind of a power that just speaks volumes, literally.
0: Uh, good one. Uh, I'm going to read a, an analogy you make, and I, I love this analogy for a couple of reasons, Um You say, the more volume rebates a drug firm can offer the PBM, the better deal it can command to exclude its rivals. It's a little like Budweiser approaching a bar owner saying, okay, at the end of the year, I'll pay you 50 cents a bottle if you've sold 40,000 bottles of Bud. Better yet, I'll make it a dollar a bottle if you don't put any of that microbrewery's beer on the menu. If the microbrewery sells a limited number of bottles, how could it ever compete? The microbrewery could never offer enough off the price of its few beers to compensate for the tens of thousands of dollars the bar owner would forgo by rejecting Budweiser's, Budweiser's offer. The point is simply the following. The greater a drug's volume, the more the drug company can spread out a persuasion payment across each unit of the drug sold. End of quote. We've had some conversation on this program, with Matt Stoller, uh, about how competitive the beer industry is. And I'm sure Budweiser tries to do things like that. And a, a bar owner has to decide whether they're going to be an attractive place to come on a Saturday night if they only have Budweiser. So there's a cost to excluding the microbrewery. And even if they succumb to that, even if they think, oh, there's not that many bars around, I bet I can get away with it, the microbrewery will open its own microbrewery and and will compete with a better beer if, if you think uh, the microbrewery is – if there are people who wish to consume the microbrewery's product. Uh, we are living in the heavenly time of, I think, the greatest number of craft brewers – uh, in in American history, there were 5,000 small independent microbreweries out there. The beer is fantastic. Uh, it's the golden age. Uh, so that's working despite the urge of, of Budweiser to, to do that. But that won't work in the drug ca- uh, case, will it?
1: It absolutely won't work. And in part, it's because government has put its thumb on the scale in a way that the drug companies have figured out. Um, To use to their own advantage. Before I shift to that, um, if it's all right, I'd love to just give you a couple of examples of where this is actually happening, because it's great to talk in theory. And even though these deals are are secret, but it's starting to leak out in lawsuits, sometimes in contract disputes between the parties themselves. Amazing what you can find when people start fighting with each other. (laughs) So let me give you a couple of examples. In October 2017, Shire sued Allergan, alleging that Allergan used bundled rebates. That is when you spread your volume across a bunch of drugs um, to preserve its dominant market in the blockbuster dry eye medication Restasis. This should be familiar to you from the um, uh, Indian reservation snafu that was tried. So in this case, According to one Medicare plan administrator, given Allergan's bundling scheme, the new competitor could give its drug away for free, numbers still wouldn't work. That's what we were talking about with, uh, you know, with, with what Budweiser wishes it could do. So I can give you another one, and this is a, again a case filed in, in late 2017, and this one is Johnson & Johnson's rheumatoid arthritis drug, Remicade. So, according to the complaint, after the patent protection expired, and just weeks after a biosimilar came on the market, that's a that's a cheaper competing drug, the company began a bundling scheme that induced hospitals and health plans to essentially exclude the lower priced copy, even though it was covered by government plans. So I could you know I can give you I can go on and on in lists of these. Um, the point is that we are seeing it happen in the real world. Um, there's a wonderful quote from one doctor who said, it's Alice in Wonderland time in the drug world. I would say it's Alice in Wonderland time, except it's our money going down the rabbit hole. You had asked me before, though, about yeah, the how, thumb. you know, what's the thumb on the scale? So why is it? But drug companies have become very adept at uh, using their monopoly positions, their government-granted monopolies, in order to try to um, put in place these types of deals. So um, companies begin with a position of uh, monopoly from a patent that they have or from more than a dozen what are called non-patent exclusivities that companies can get for doing things like testing drugs in children, um, or uh, um, working on uh, rare pediatric um, diseases, whatever it is, they're, uh, orphan drugs is one people may have heard of. So they get additional um, periods of times of protections. And um, companies use these to amass the volume positions and create contract terms that'll hobble the generics when they finally get to market. Uh, And as I mentioned, the, the companies are absolutely masters at repeatedly extending their protections. So, in fact, I show in my research for the book that drug companies are largely recycling and repurposing drugs rather than inventing new ones. More than three quarters of the drugs associated with new patents are not new drugs coming on the market. They are existing ones. So. Instead of innovation, we're seeing secondary patents piled onto new drugs over and over again. We um, want drug companies to go back to the bench and invent new things. Uh, this this is this is channeling innovation in a less productive direction.
0: But the question I have and I'm not sure it's answerable is. Uh, I'm gonna ask it two different ways. You can figure out maybe which was the best way to get at this. So this is a horrible system, the way you describe it, if it's accurate. And it seems based on these kind of uh, the small pieces of information we have from these, you know, documents that are revealed in lawsuits, that this is a, an extraordinarily uh Byzantine and uh not so helpful structure for how drug prices get set. So the first question that comes to mind is why are there only three big ones why aren't the smaller why aren't there a why aren't there pbms able to to compete by offering a more transparent deal why doesn't somebody start a transparent one and and do a better job and get rid of all this uh what looks on the surface to be exploitation
1: well it wouldn't be in a pbm's interest <laughs> to get rid of this and to operate transparently because the pbms um uh, revenue and profit margins have been rising rapidly in recent years. Again, it's the incentives within the system that are driving the behavior that we have. The profit margins for companies um, on their their drugs um, is about seventy six percent in terms of the marginal cost. Once you you know once you have the drug in place, it goes back to why companies are. Um, incentivized to try to make secondary changes to a drug rather than inventing a new one well the the R&D is much less when you make a secondary change to a drug <clears throat> such as excuse me <clears throat> so when a company makes a secondary change to a drug like adjusting a drug's dosage the R&D investment is far less than required for the drug's initial de- in development so you may get a change that means very little from a therapeutic standpoint but you get an a lavish reward in return. That's what the drug company's going to be driven to do. It's the same reason we see PBMs driven in the direction they are there. It's because, well, that's where the profit is.
0: But I would but I understand why they do what they want to do. I don't understand why the drug companies and the health insurers put up with it. Because it would seem to me they should if this is really going on and it's really they're taking a big slice through these this complex rebate process and the use of, of formularies to keep out competitors. And why wouldn't the drug companies just work directly with the health insurance companies, let the health insurance companies negotiate the deals, cut the PBMs out of it, and then both everybody would be better off. Now, whether the patient would be is a different, still a different question, but it seems like both the health insurance comp the health insurers and the drug manufacturers are being taken advantage of by the PBMs.
1: And and that's a, a, a key Question: I spent a lot of time researching and thinking about. Why can't the big insurers bargain against this? Why don't they? Now, certainly there are many small regional plans who don't have much power, um, and one can't underestimate the complexity of the volume flow of claims in these ridiculously complex agreements and what it would cost them to try to... um, edit all of those, to, to audit all of those, to bargain for the terms they want, then to make sure the terms are going through. They, they're not going to be able to do that. But how about the big plans? We've yeah. got big yeah. players out there. Um, why would they ever allow the PBMs to push them into a system like this? That you know They're, they're not um, uh, naive waifs. And the answer, I think, as always, it's a pretty simple piece of economics. The health plan's short-term goal is to keep this year's payments to the PBM and through the PBM to the drug companies, but the goal is to keep this year's payments as low as possible. And remember that volume agreements can work so that those who are already in the market and have a high volume can offer deals that the cheaper entrants can't match. So to the middle player, the price is cheaper this way, even if the long-term consequence is to block out the cheaper competitor. And when a health plan with market clout asks for rebate pass-throughs or access to claim terms, the PBMs are starting to offer price protection contracting. So with a price protection contract, the PBM promises the plan that prices won't rise, say, more than two to four percent a year, and then tells the plan why bother with all that grubby detail, details expensive to sort through, you care about the bottom line. That's what we'll guarantee. So in this way, the health plan's short-term interest in controlling price increases is satisfied without having to sacrifice the things that the drug companies want and that, of course, help line the pockets of all the intermediary players. Again, it comes back to what are the incentives driving the system, and they begin with the power that the drug companies have from the patent and exclusivity systems, and their ability to string those out, pile those on uh, one after another.
0: I think part of the problem also is that the health insuring industry is also not very competitive. Uh, They can pass on increases if they have to uh, to employers, uh, since many of the systems are employer-based, Employers then can charge a higher price for the fringe benefit that they offer of med- medical plans, medical coverage, as long as it's not too much, it's not so bad. Uh, since nobody spent, so few people are spending their own money, there's not as much care taken as to whether the money's being well spent.
1: It is. It is a problem when somebody else is is paying for something that I can enjoy. I, you know, I may not watch my pocket quite as carefully. Um, and there are other problems in the healthcare market. My life and my comfort to me may be of infinite value um, in a way that is irrational. Healthcare spending is is sometimes irrational, but every budget has a limit, um, and it doesn't take uh, fancy mathematics to recognize that that we are going to approach the point at which. These price rises and the the real spending going out isn't isn't sustainable. There are, you know, by the way, there are um, provisions of the Affordable Care Act that are making things worse. That that even more distort what's happening here. Um, I'm happy to discuss yeah, them. Talk a little- about that. Yeah, I like to refer to them as ice cream and donuts. Uh, so. Consider the what's called the 80-20 rule. This is in the Affordable Care Act. It mandates that health insurance companies have to spend 80% of their premium dollars on medical claims as opposed to profits or administrative costs. I mean, sounds good. After all, limiting profits for health insurances um, should keep a lid on premiums. But, but not so fast. So, so think of it this way. If mom says... You can have 10% of a bowl of ice cream. A smart kid will say, make it a bigger bowl. And that's exactly what what happens. If if health plans can only have 10% of premiums of their profits, well, of course, they're going to want higher premiums. And so higher drug costs play into that. And then the health plans have less of an incentive to push back on rising drug costs if those costs also help lift the profit ceiling. That's not a well-designed economic incentive. So that's my ice cream. Let me give you donuts. So under the Affordable Care Act, once a Medicare patient reaches the out-of-pocket threshold, the government steps in and picks up 80% of the tab. This is what's known as reinsurance. It's not really
0: insurance. It's the government pocket.
1: If a Medicare plan, that's my is, pocket,
0: Robin. By the way, and yours.
1: <laughs> Your pocket and mine, and everybody else is out there who pays taxes.
0: Yeah.
1: If a Medicare plan gives preference to an expensive brand over the generic, the plan saves money because that super high brand price quickly pushes the pay- patient through the donut hole, and the government picks up eighty percent of the cost. Good for the plan great for the drug company, bad for taxpayers.
0: Yeah, who aren't, of course, paying terribly close attention all the time. Um,
1: And the Medicare patient's cost-sharing obligation, by the way, in this fancy plan, is uh, based on the high list price. So the patient gets socked with higher cost-sharing in all of this. So it's the taxpayers who are paying to subsidize it and the patients who are opening their own wallets.
0: Now, the pharmaceutical industry will respond to this with a couple of claims, uh, some of which uh, all of which have some truth to them, and I'm curious uh, how you respond to this. So one of the claims is that while well, all these that profits from, from drugs that, that eventually much of them do flow to the pharmaceutical companies, not just to the PBMs or the health insurers, um, that's great because that leads to more innovation. Uh, we need the drug approval process is incredibly expensive. As you point out in the book, we're not—it's not an easy question to answer to what, it, how much it takes to bring a successful drug to market. But it's an enormous amount of money to prove safety and efficacy. Uh, it might be a billion or more. It's at least hundreds of millions. So we need these profits to sustain the costs of to overcome the costs of development and 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 mark and regulation, and also to make up for the drugs that are that don't make it, that aren't worthwhile, that aren't successful.
1: So, I always want to start by saying that the drug companies have brought extraordinary innovations. That is important for society, and those innovations should be handsomely rewarded. That's how the system is designed to work. After a period of time, however, we want competition to step in and drive prices down, and we want the companies to go back to the bench and start inventing. The system has developed in a way that distorts what we are seeing. So when you have three quarters of the drugs with new patents, not new drugs but existing one, we're not getting the full innovation return on our patent investment. We're getting a recycling and repurposing of what exists. we are we're distorting. So those large numbers of how much it costs to develop a new drug, those are for the new drugs, for the what's probably less than 20% of the market, according to most estimates. Um, but 80% of what we've got out there don't have those costs, and they're not necessarily the innovation we want. So the cycle of innovation, reward, then competition is being distorted into a system of innovation, reward, more reward, and uh less valuable innovation.
0: So we talked about this in our previous conversation, but I want you to go into it as you do in the book, in this latest book. Uh, I I don't think most of us have any idea of what these secondary patents are. And I've always just assumed, well, if it's patented, it's like a new thing and that's great. Uh, It's shocking how unhelpful many of these so-called innovations are in these new patents that are just a repatenting or whatever term you use. So talk about what things that are Qualifying as, quote, new patents.
1: So um, many of these secondary patents are minor changes in dosage or delivery system. Um, it could be a, a two times a day pill into a three times or a three times a day pill into um, a two times. Some of them are merely combinations of existing medications that could be purchased individually for a lot less. So. Let me give you an example. There's a, a drug called Treximet. It's a migraine medication that combines an old migraine medicine and a proxin. You can buy those two separately for about uh, ten or fifteen dollars. Treximet, which is just the two pills mixed together, costs um, over eight hundred dollars for nine pills. Um, that's an extraordinary price difference. Now. Um, we were, I was talking about the, the minor tweaks in dosage or delivery system that may be of value to some extent to some pain, patients doesn't mean it has no value but it doesn't um, have the kind of value that we would want for another um, decade or two of protection that's, that's really not what we're trying to um, incentivize I think I think if you step back and think about how our system is working or not working, the Patent and Trademark Office doesn't ask whether something is better, whether it delivers much value at all. It just asks whether it's different. And in this country, as opposed to some other countries, the FDA, when it approves, doesn't ask whether something is better or delivers much value. It just asks whether something is safe and effective. Nobody's asking that question in our system, and uh, it's a it's a problem for the incentives.
0: But that's the heart of the problem. It's i there. You can debate what the heart of the problem is, but and I, I have one other one I want to share in a, in a minute. But in a, in many ways, this is the crux of the issue. Uh, this issue of, of patents and and the ability to get a monopoly and to keep out generics. So, as I mentioned before, when we talked, you know, I think most of us think, oh, you get a pat, you get a you get monopoly. Pricing for X years depends on, you know, when it comes to market, how long it took to to get it to market. But then the generics come in and the price drops, and that does happen occasionally. But this idea of secondary patenting is where you just change, you tweak it, and you continue to get the monopoly profits and make it harder for generics, either illegal or difficult, for generics to get a a foothold. And that's just, like, shockingly bad and and, and clearly— the idea that you could patent something that's just a tweak on your previous idea and extend the power is not what anybody any economist would say unless we're underappreciating say the new delivery system that new delivery system makes it sound like it's a um, you know a rocket launcher versus a hand delivered package or airmail versus horse a lot of times it's just the coding of the drug right and and that's just or do you, is that just a, uh, an obscure occasional example of this? Because those no. are, seem to be rather – it's rather remarkable to me that that could allow a firm to continue to get monopoly pricing.
1: These, these tweaks really are business as usual in the pharmaceutical system. There are some, some, some marvelous um, uh, outliers. I found one drug uh, when I was researching that took – um, a drug that already had an absorption uh, coating around it put a different coating around it uh and got a new patent for that sold it by a new name in a new drug um you know the these that that kind of game is silly, but the basic um approach of tweaking drugs a little bit that's business as usual throughout the industry and You're right, economically, it isn't something that that makes sense. Now, my answer for um, value is simply, it doesn't take the same level of R&D to tweak a drug in that way. You should have gotten your reward from your initial patent to the extent that this tweak has some value to the market, the market value will reward you. If some patients would rather take it twice a day than three times a day, well, that should be enough to compensate for the tweak that you you did. It it isn't necessary to have the government put its thumb on the scale and give you an extraordinarily lavish reward that blocks the
0: competitors out. So you gave a silly example, uh, a different coding, Mm. and yet you find in your work that I'm quoting, 78% of the drugs associated with new patents were not new drugs coming on the market, but existing drugs. So at one end, we have the new coding. Maybe at the other end, we have something that works better for women than men or better for old people than young people or doesn't make you nauseous. Or I assume some of the tweaks have actual value than just the coding. But the problem I have as an economist is that some of those, quote, improvements are trivial. And so as a result... It's true they're worth something, but it should be compared, that new value, to the alternative, the generic. And what this does is unfortunately keep the generic just out of the choice system. And that's just a bizarrely uh bad way to organize anything. I, I know in medicine, you know, people say, Well, I want the best. Well, if the best, you know, extends your life by By six days and cost a million dollars versus ten dollars, a lot of people say, I'll take the ten dollar one and let my kids or even taxpayers, who I don't know, save the money. It seems wrong, right? And that whole comparison of value versus cost is totally eliminated by this secondary patent opportunity.
1: There is an extraordinary distortion here, and I see it in two ways. One is what you're talking about, which is the um, you see huge stampede into cancer drugs which is um, inspired by the exclusivities that are available there and aren't available other places. So you see a lot of drugs that have very little effect, if any, maybe extending life for a month or two, or maybe not, but extraordinarily expensive. Economically, that doesn't make sense. Um, You also have to think about it in terms of the comparative economics. So Let's say you've got, uh, you know, why are we seeing things that do, you know, small tweaks in the market? It's because that's where the returns are so high. So sometimes you'll hear drug companies say, well, if you don't let me get a reward on altering the existing drug, um, then I won't do that. And there may be some good changes out there that won't happen because of that. My answer to it is, it's a comparative problem. If we were allowing market forces to work, that change and reaching to that group of patients would be an economically attractive solution to you. It's only because we have this system that lets you make hay out of things that have very little value and cost you very little, but you're going to make a fortune on it, that we're driving you into that and we're getting a distorted market from it.
0: So I want to raise a cultural issue, which I I'm uneasy in usually raising cultural issues. Uh, As an economist, they're not quantifiable, and so in general, people are uneasy about it. But it it seems to me that this could be part of the problem, and I want to get your reaction. So if I have a patent, let's talk about patented drugs that really should be patented um, and and earn their patent that do something important for human well-being, and we're happy that they get developed, we're thrilled, and we want firms to be incentivized to find those kind of improvements, and we let them make a lot of money. The question is always, well, what's a lot of money? And I think at some point in corporate history, drug firms felt bad raising prices enormous amounts, uh, even though they had a monopoly. And so they didn't. And yet today, I feel like those restraints are off. There are a lot of reasons we might speculate why that's true. But A firm that charges tens of thousands of dollars and sometimes more, hundreds of thousands of dollars for some uh, chemotherapy, some type of cancer treatment. We had uh, Vincent Rajkumar on the program talking about treatment for multiple myeloma. It's incredibly expensive, and yet it's very good. It's a good thing for the people who who, who helped or benefited from it. And yet what firms charge for that seems to me uh, is, quote, excessive in the following way. In the old days, excuse me, not in the old days, in a real market, your ability to charge high prices is limited by the ability of the consumers to pay for it. But since in this market, the consumers don't pay for it, rather someone else does, whether it's government uh, benefits for the elderly or the poor, whether it's the third-party payment for an employer's health insurance coverage, the sky's the limit. All those constraints are off. Now, it's true that only a few people end up paying that horrible high price, you could call them the suckers, uh, and many people do get discounts and rebates. But what that high price is, and the fact that anybody pays for it, it just wouldn't happen in a market. It wouldn't be op- there; wouldn't be that opportunity. And yet, because it's there's a third party involved, we're kind of stuck with the, I don't know, the cultural ability of of the firm to police itself, which is absurd and a really bad idea. And once those cultural wraps are off, it just. Those increases are now they're going to feel bad increasing it at say a thousand percent the first year. Occasionally, we get those, but they just do it. I oh, will just do it ten percent a year. That's bizarre. And I just have a feeling I hate to say that phrase. I have a feeling it sounds horrible, but I have a feeling that those constraints existed in the past and they don't, they aren't there anymore.
1: Now, I think there are two really wonderful parts of, of what you were describing. Maybe wonderful is the wrong word, but there. There is a problem with third party payers, but all budgets have limits. Even the third party payers' yep, budget yep, has a enough. limit to it. Um, so, so you're going you should find some limits there. But in addition, you you had a phenomenon that is difficult to discuss in economic terms, but there really is um, there really is a, a psychological limit to um, how high drug companies felt comfortable. Introducing new drugs or raising the price of existing drugs. Um, once that barrier was crossed, the sky became the limit. And 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 that as a as a, a shift, modality shift, is is a both troubling and fascinating one. The the second is it's important to understand how that those rebates work in terms of the dollars people end up paying. So if you're raising the price significantly every year, um, the bottom line price after the rebate still goes up. So the rebates, the average rebates in a commercial plan are reported to be, and obviously I can't measure this, but they're reported to be 20 to 30%. So um, if you're going down 20 to 30% of a number that's already gone up 60% in the last four years, you've still got prices rising. And then that becomes, that becomes a floor, uh, you know, not really a ceiling. And, and new drugs can come out even higher than that and look cheap in comparison. Generics can just drop down a little and say, hey, I'm a bargain. Um, you know, all of that um, shift in the curve um, is, is very difficult and troubling.
0: So one view, uh, let me take the, um, the industry side here for a minute. One view says, you know, okay, it's, there's some ugly things in this business. There's some people try to make more profit by extending their monopoly in stupid ways that the government allows. So it's not our fault. Of course, we're going to go for uh, tweaks of of composition and structure of these of these molecules, and we're going to change the delivery system. We're going to do everything we can to extend our profit. That's normal. It's not our fault that we have a stupid patent system the way it's structured. Uh, it's true that there are these rebates and weird labyrinth and Kafka-esque uh, things that happen in this non-opaque uh, delivery structure called the pharmacy benefit managers. But look, let's look at the bottom line. The bottom line is we have the greatest dr- drugs in the history of human beings. We have incredible innovation in, in, in the system. Drugs, yes, they're expensive, but they're, they're only a you know, they're barely more than 10% of the healthcare bill. It's not where the problem is. So just leave it alone. It's not so important. It's not not a big deal. You're you're overreacting.
1: Well, um, I would ask any one of your listeners if they agree with that when they're shelling out dollars at the pharmacy counter. Uh, And I would ask um, how people feel with the fact that the things that are covered in their health plans are fewer and fewer, and uh, co-pays are higher, co is higher, the drugs that are covered are more limited. I suspect if you ask the average person, the average person would say, marvelous, wonderful economics, I'm hurting, uh, and I don't like it. I think that's why you're seeing pressure on Congress and at the statehouse level to act, because um, these prices are affecting real people in, in very Real ways, so we can we can structure all kinds of of numbers to say it's no problem, but the average person will tell you it's a problem.
0: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna respond to that for the but I'm gonna keep me my industry hat on for a moment. Yes, which which I don't like wearing, but uh, uh, because I do think it's a systemic problem. Uh, But but I'm gonna put my industry hat on for a moment. I'm gonna say the following. Okay, let's suppose um, the government changed the automobile market. And they started to not allow cars with certain uh, – the cars that didn't have certain features to be on the market at all. In other words, they mandated a whole bunch of uh, safety things and effectiveness things in how cars work. And so you have to get a certain number of miles per gallon. Uh, all cars have to have uh, certain safety features, maybe even ones that don't exist now. And as a result, it's going to push up the price of cars, and it's going imp- to improve the quality of cars as well. Uh, so I now I'm – I used to buy a Honda – and now all of a sudden, I'm uh, forced to buy a Lexus. Well, Lexus is expensive, and of course, I'm going to complain. And the pharmaceutical industry and the car industry will say, "Yeah, but you're getting a Lexus." It's true that you don't like all these out-of-pocket payments you have to make in the copays, and when you get to the pharmacy counter. But you're getting the greatest drugs in the world. You shouldn't complain. You should be thrilled. You've got the best car. You've got the best drugs.
1: Now well, I'd say to that. I don't think we're getting a Lexus. I think we're getting a smart car and we're paying Lexus prices and we're doing that because of the way the government is meddling in the market. What I would say is I want to see competition reign. I will give you that we definitely need a period of protection for drug companies to recoup profits uh, so that they can uh, have an innovation, have an incentive to go out and innovation and innovate. But all good things have to come to an end. We need a time period for that to end, and we need real competition. And if you can't compete, go back to the bench, invent something that can compete.
0: We recently had Jacob Stegenga on the program talking about his book, Medical Dialism. And uh, I'm going to channel my inner uh, Jacob Stegenga for for a minute. He mentions that there are only a handful of what he calls magic bullets, uh, drugs that cure the problem they're directed at and don't have a lot of side effects. And one of those is insulin. So recently in the in the news, there have been people complaining about the high price of insulin, that people can't afford their insulin. Uh, insulin was discovered a long, long time ago. Uh, the reason it's expensive is part of what we're talking about, and I suspect that people who have diabetes and who take insulin are very happy at the innovations that have taken in place in the insulin market and are happy to, that those are there. They include delivery changes in, in the mode of of how they're uh, the insulin's delivered in the body. I assume they maybe include other things about the quality of the drug itself. I don't know, but there could be cheap insulin on the market, it but there isn't. Meaning it's it's feasible. It's it's uh imaginable that someone could sell generic insulin, but I have a feeling it's not happening for some complicated reasons. Do you know anything about that? And oh, that's yes. that's my argument that <laughs> that's my argument that says why don't you let me buy? You said a smart car for people. Who, I know you live in the Bay Area, Robin. If, if for people in the, who don't live in the Bay Area, smart car is a little tiny thing, a little small, um, like a mini car. Uh, but I'll just take a, a Kia, which is a pretty good car, really good car compared to say a car of 25 years ago. Sounds as good as a as a Lexus today in terms certain dimensions. It's just as good, but they don't let those on the market. Why is it they're cheap insulin on the market?
1: Well. Insulin products are a classic example of drugs with extended protections. Now, so all of the top selling insulin drugs have increased their protection by at least 20 years. Each of the top selling insulin drugs has piled on dozens of protections, um, one of them uh, 55 protections. And again, those protections um, provide the kind of volume that can set up the sort of deals with the PBM so that new, cheaper entrants can't get into the market. And can't get a foothold once they get approval. Now, there are nonprofit organizations that are trying to come up with uh, cheap generic insulins, but you can make the drug if you can't get your way into the healthcare coverage, if you can't get the plans to accept them, no patient's going to get that drug.
0: I'm not going to quote the people who are railing against this because i rather not, but for a variety of reasons. But uh, you could understand that. The fact that you can—if it's not anybody's fault that they have diabetes—generally, they're right. It's—it's it's, just—it's a disease, and to pay a high price for it, hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a dose, is really yeah. unpleasant. And it's easy to blame big pharma for that because they are the ones selling it for hundreds of dollars or whatever the price is. But you'd think <laughs> this opportunity for nonprofits to deliver it would be a, a layup. Like, what's stopping it? I understand that Big pharma doesn't want it to happen. I get that. Obviously, they want to keep their profits high. But it, it seems to me that whatever barriers are to having nonprofits give away or sell at a very low price generic insulin should be a, kind of an easy public policy problem to solve. Why isn't that happening?
1: It goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show with PBMs. So... The health plans through their PBMs have uh, long-term contracts. They have contracts with the drug companies about uh, preferring their drug over cheaper competitors. If that cheaper competitor can't get coverage under the health plan, nothing's going to happen. They're not—they're—they're they're not going to be able to get traction in the market. Insulin, by the way, the the um, drugs that you're talking about that provides just a, a wonderful anecdote for me I was testifying a couple of weeks ago on the ways and means health subcommittee and one of the witnesses representing the pharmaceutical point of view was um, arguing that prices haven't really risen that there is no problem that everything is fine the um, one of the first, um, witnesses interviewing him, and there were there were a number. I'm sorry, a, a number of members of Congress who were interviewing him and were were taking the pro industry position. But but even one of the first and most vocal proponents of that looked slightly chagrined and said, "Well, we have type two diabetes in my family, and I I have to say I can tell you the prices
0: are rising. Um, it's, it's you
1: know it's, uh, that's it's a awkward. it's a hard position
0: to to support." But, but your example of the PBMs, I, I understand that for, say, a health insurance plan that's offered by a, an American corporation uh, mm. or or my university or or yours. But mm-hmm. can, can a nonprofit today sell generic? How hard is it for a nonprofit? Forget about being on the formula of a PBM. If I'm a group that's trying to help poor people, say, who don't have health insurance, who don't have any drug coverage right now, and maybe they're not poor, they're they're just – low income, is it hard for me to distribute or or give away or sell a, a generic insulin product for people who are struggling with the amount of money that you're talking about?
1: Sure. The major focus of drug distribution, uh, prescription drug distribution, is through a health plan. If your product is not on the formulary, it's not going to get filled it's not going to get um, substituted at the pharmacy. It's not going to get into the system. Those individual patients aren't going to find it. A brand company, which has lots and lots of money, can afford to advertise massively on television and reach patients everywhere. A company that's trying to make a cheap generic version isn't going to engage in that advertising, isn't going to be able to reach the those patients.
0: I guess what I'm thinking is, Why doesn't someone start a nonprofit pharmaceutical company that specializes in creating these low-cost generic drugs that have very low regulatory hurdles for uh, safety and efficacy because the the molecules have been around for a long time and try to – and finance that out of of a combination of donations and maybe charging patients a small amount of money to cover their costs and they could – Bypass the formulary. Bypass the the PBM system.
1: So I I think that would be a fascinating idea. But honestly, I'm much more interested in a market solution. Why aren't we seeing companies out there who are looking at this Rube Goldberg industry we have, where the payments are made at different times and half thrown backwards over your shoulders and half forward, and then it goes up and down around one truck and the next to the... Why don't we find someone who's who's waving all of that away and doing a direct distribution um, in a way that is much more efficient and effective? There's plenty of money flowing around in this market for a much more efficient system. From that perspective i'm I'm fascinated by the the venture between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan to try to figure out uh, a way to deliver drugs to their employees more efficiently. That's an interesting triumvirate. Maybe we will see innovation within business organization. Maybe that's the way forward.
0: So you you talk about different solutions in your book, Uh, most of them uh, that have been proposed by various people. Uh, Most of them, I would suggest, are either ineffective or uh, dead on arrival. Uh I'm going to focus on one and then you can tell me which ones you think are most promising but the one that that just st- again stuns me I've alluded to it earlier is the way the patent system works how how the heck can you get a patent for changing the coating on a drug and <laughs> extend it uh you know for another 20 years that just seems bizarro w- why is that the way our patent system is it's like me saying uh you know I'm going to patent something uh I'm going to patent peaches because my peach comes in a, a shiny wrapper and, and my competitors don't, so I get a monopoly on the peach industry. That would be laughed at. Why is that working in the pharmaceutical industry?
1: I don't think that's um, how the patent system was intended to operate. It, it is what we're living with. That, it seems to me, fixing that is the, the quickest, most direct approach you could. And that is Congress could simply say um, in the Patent Act, these types of minor tweaks and minor chemical modifications are, using patent language, obvious they're not patentable. That's not what we mean by innovation. That that would be a very direct um, approach and I think would go a long way towards ending some of these distortions in the market. A, a more complex approach is one that I describe in the book and have talked a lot about. It's what I call one and done. And that is... Uh, drug companies should get one period of innovation, uh, one period of protection for its innovation, and only one. And at the time that the drug is approved, let the drug company pick which one it wants. One of its many patents. Uh, maybe it's orphan drug exclusivity. Maybe it's data protection. It, you know, Let the company decide which of these at this moment is most valuable to the company. And then that's the one. But after that, no more. So that all the competitors know what the right is that's being asserted, when it's going to end, and then we get competition at that point. I don't even mind if it's a longer period of protection, but the notion is pick a period, any period, and let it come to an end.
0: And when you say one and done, you don't mean the company gets one patent. You're saying for one of its drugs, it gets one.
1: Yeah, the basic chemical composition. Of the drug
0: so is that yes. going to end up being where they find their arbitrage opportunity by redefining what the chemical composition is do you think that's is that kind of um, definition enforceable
1: I think that is exactly where the the bargaining and negotiating would happen if Congress went into this direction what is it that counts as a drug what is it that doesn't and uh, that that's where the difficult, That's where the difficulty is, but I do think it's definable, and I think you could do um, a very good job at it. And you would be combining what I spoke about before, which is is specifying a category of things that are perfectly obvious and shouldn't be subject to greater um, protections.
0: Are you optimistic? You've been working on this area for a few years. Um, It's great that you're ringing this bell and we're telling people that this system is not a very effective system, uh, that it's not well designed, that it needs to be changed. There are a lot of people making enormous amounts of money off of it, as you detail. It's not the focus of your book, but it's we all understand that's what's going on in the background. We understand that people who make enormous amounts of money try to keep that system in place. Um, are you optimistic that we can dent this problem or make some progress?
1: I am eternally optimistic. <laughs> I'm also realistic. It's not going to be easy. What I worry the most about is um, uh, legislative fatigue. That it is so hard, given the way that the various industries fight this, given the amount of money that's at stake, it's very difficult to get um, legislative changes. I worry that a few small changes will come into place. It will be so exhausting for uh, the legislators and regulators that they'll declare victory, bring the troops home. We'll get a little bit of improvement, but but really um, the system remains as it is and we don't get what we need.
0: That sounds so helpful. Anything better for me, Robin?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll go back to I remain eternally optimistic. I, I do believe that this is an important moment historically, that um, given the fact patients are feeling this amount of pain and are frightened about being able to afford their medications, uh, that there is an opportunity to act if we take it. And if we take economics seriously and think about how the incentive structures flow and how we want to allow competition to happen.
0: My guest today has been Robin Feldman. Her book is Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes. Robin, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette,